At the end of John 6, which is the chapter all about Jesus being the bread of life. Remember, it starts with Jesus doing the big miracle where he feeds thousands. And then he walks on water. And then he ends up in a synagogue. And those thousands of people come and find him. And he gives one of his most famous sermons, the Bread of Life Discourse. And that's where he takes these two signs, these two miracles, and he turns them into lessons. And he teaches the people, he's the bread, he's the bread of life. Well, now we see the end of that sermon uh, and what happened right after. That's our text for today. So we'll start with verse 52. Let's stand. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before. The Spirit gives life, and the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe, and who would betray him. And he went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. And from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. Well, we read earlier in the first reading uh, that Dan read from 1 Corinthians, we read this. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And in this story, at the end of the whole Bread of Life discourse, we see the truth in this statement. That the message of the cross, the message of Jesus, is foolishness to some, but it's 
power of God to others. We see that this is true today. We can look around and some people look at Jesus, who he is, who he claimed to be in his teachings, and they see the power of God. They see life. Other people look at Jesus and his teachings and who he claimed to be, and they see utter foolishness or maybe something offensive. But in our story that we read, we can see that it was even like that when Jesus was walking around Galilee preaching. It's always been like that. Even when Jesus was giving his teaching firsthand, showing himself to people firsthand, his message was divisive. As peaceful as Jesus is, he's the Prince of Peace. As kind as Jesus is, he is the love of God incarnate. As gentle as Jesus is, he is the Good Shepherd. He himself, his teaching, is radically offensive and divisive. After Jesus gave his epic sermon, which I know we're not covering all of it today, if you want, I know we're behind on the sermon recordings on the website. I'll work on that this week. If I can go back and listen if you want, or you can just read John 6. But after Jesus gave his famous sermon where he claimed, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread that came down from heaven. I'm the bread from God that's, that's for the life of the world. Even then, it was offensive. What catches my attention, one of the things that catches my attention about this passage is that it starts off with the Judeans grumbling. We've already talked at length about how when the New International Version, the version of the English Bible we use, when it says the Jews, it doesn't mean Jewish people as a whole. Actually, in the Greek, it's the word the Judeans. And what John is referring to there is the Judean religious establishment and the people who were affiliated with it. Uh, Judah, the Judeans, lived in the south. Galileans lived in the north. Um, they were all ethnically and religiously Jewish, uh, but culturally they were different. And we see that throughout Jesus' ministry in John, the Judeans have really questioned him hard and even have begun to oppose him at this point. And our passage opens with the Judeans sort of mocking him. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Clearly Jesus is speaking metaphorically. But they're, it's like they're, they're picking at what he's saying. But when it gets down to the part where it says that many people are offended by his teaching and, and they leave, it doesn't say many Judeans. It says many of his disciples. Many of his friends. That strikes me. John doesn't tell us which part of his teaching in the whole bread of life discourse that offended this particular group of people. The particular group of many disciples is what it said who left. Um, but I don't think John needs to because if we go back and we read through the, the bread of life discourse in John 6... We find many things that Jesus says that could be radically offensive. I sat down and I tried to make a list of everything Jesus said about himself that might offend somebody. Here's my list. Um, four times he uses the words, I am. 
which in this Jewish context, uh, that would have been offensive because he is quoting from God's name, Yahweh, the great I am. Four times he says, I am. And that's in relation to him being the bread of life. I am the bread of life. I am the bread that comes down from heaven. Uh, he claims to be the bread from heaven that gives life to the world. That in itself is offensive. He's saying, I am what the world needs to live. That's a pretty bold claim. He claimed to be God's person, the Son of Man. He claimed to be the person who dishes out eternal life. He claimed that the work of God, the thing that God is doing in eternity and in the universe and in the world, is causing people to believe in him. He claimed that everyone who hears God the Father comes to him, comes to Jesus. Jesus said that about himself. Jesus said that he is able to raise the dead, and he promised that one day he would. And then at the end of his sermon, the part we read today, he claimed that the difference between eternal life, true spiritual life, and eternal death, or true spiritual death, the difference between the two is marked by the act of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Jesus says lots of things here that can be considered offensive. Um, I know many of us are familiar with C.S. Lewis. Uh, many of us, I'm going to guess, have probably read or have heard about his great work, Mere Christianity. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis makes this famous argument about Jesus. Uh, it's often referred to as the liar, lunatic, lord uh, apologetic. And what Lewis is doing in the book is he's arguing that um, the idea that Jesus is just was not God incarnate, but just a good moral teacher or just an enlightened human being, which is a popular view. Lewis is arguing that that position is unreasonable. Listen to Lewis's words. I'm going to quote him at length here. C.S. Lewis writes this in Mere Christianity. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the real, the really foolish. Let me start over. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a man-man and something worse. You can shut him up for a fool or you can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall on his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. Maybe you've heard this quoted before. It's a very famous quote. C.S. Lewis says, and many people have argued something like this. If we look at Jesus' actual teaching and Jesus' actual claims about himself, then we must conclude that either Jesus was 
telling the truth or he was lying. Of course, anybody who teaches anything, we have to decide are they telling the truth or are they lying. And if he's telling what he believes to be the truth about himself, if he really believes that he is God's person in a unique way, that he can raise the dead, that the difference between eternal life or eternal death is eating his flesh and drinking his blood, if he really thinks that he is the I am, then either he's crazy or he's actually those things. Or he's just some kind of psychotic, narcissistic, lying megalomaniac. There's really not much of another option. Now, in Mere Christianity, Lewis goes on to take on the liar thing, take on the lunatic thing, and he eventually concludes, uh, according to reason, if we look at Jesus' claims, we must accept the fact that he is Lord and God. And that's great. What I want to point out today, though, is whether Jesus was telling the truth or whether he was lying. And whether he was telling the truth and he's crazy, because he thought, we, thought it was true, or he was telling the truth and he's actually God incarnate. Whichever option it is, liar, lunatic, or Lord, each of those is still offensive. If you're standing in the audience listening to Jesus teach, no matter where Jesus is coming from, anyone who makes claims like Jesus made would offend people. If Jesus is a liar, it's offensive that he made these claims because people are going to believe it and they're going to give their life to him. And he would just be a liar. If Jesus was crazy, then it's offensive that he would make these claims because nobody's stepping in to stop it or to help him. That Jesus is the Lord and he makes these claims. It's offensive because that means that he is the end of ourselves. That he is the final word in everything. That he stands between us and God and in order to commune with God, in order to have the fullness of life, in order to have eternal life, in order to really live in a significant way on an eternal spectrum, in order to avoid consequences for our own sin we have to come to terms with him he marks the end of our autonomy he marks the end of our self-righteousness he marks the end of everything that centers around us and we would have to leave everything to follow him Further, the fact that Jesus died on the cross and calls his disciples to pick up their crosses to follow him makes it even harder. Jesus' claims, Jesus' teaching is hard. And his disciples that day came to terms with this reality. Now I wonder if any of you have ever been in a place in your life where you follow Jesus maybe for a while but then one day you realize, this is hard. Not just because it's difficult to follow, but because the actual thing that we believe is difficult to accept. It's offensive. I wonder if you know anyone who's ever set out to follow Jesus, or who has followed Jesus for years, but eventually came to an impasse with Jesus' claims and decided to walk away. We, the word for this is deconstruction 
anyone who's been a Christian, but then went through a crisis of faith, not because they started believing weird stuff, but because they actually started wrestling with what Jesus actually claimed about himself. And they came to a place where they said, I can't accept it. And they walked away. I have friends like that. I've been in seasons like this myself. I wonder if you have. As a church, really as a church plant, if we want to be faithful to believe what Jesus believed and to teach what Jesus taught, and if we also want to be welcoming to the people around us, then we need to come, we need to learn how to understand this kind of deconstruction. We need to learn how we should think about the difficulty of Jesus' teaching. We need to learn how to interact with our friends and family who walk away from Jesus because they're offended by him. We need to know as a church what to do with the offensive nature of Jesus' teaching. Especially in our city, where Christianity is not the dominant system for culture. We need to understand what it is we believe and how it affects people. So, how should we think about the journey from belief to unbelief? As a church, we talk a lot about moving from unbelief into belief. In fact, we talk about it every week. But today I want to talk about the journey from believing to no longer believing. The deconstruction journey. The journey of following Jesus to being offended by him to walking away. Where do we file that in our doctrine, in our theology, in our practice? How do we interact with that? What should we believe about the journey of deconstruction based on Jesus' claims? Well, I see Jesus in the way that he responds in this moment. Here in the text, I see some principles, some truths that we can hold on to to help us as a church understand these things. First one, look at verse 16. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? Here's the first thing. The journey from believing to not believing, it's understandable. And if you're a note taker, that's your first thing. It's understandable. How should we process these things? Well, we need to know that the deconstruction journey, somebody losing their faith because they actually listened to Jesus, we need to know that that is an understandable thing. Jesus is not surprised, nor is he confused, nor is he appalled when people walk away from him after they hear his claims. Neither should we be. You know, it seems like um, I, I'm a student of church history. It's a passion. It's a hobby. and uh, also gets to be part of my job, which is pretty awesome. As a pastor, I need to be aware of what's going on in the church. So uh, I could talk to you about church history forever, so I will temper myself here. 
But there's a thing that's happened um, in the, across the 20th century up until today in, in each generation that fascinates me. Starting with what they call the silent generation, the, you know, the, that would be, uh, I guess, uh, my grandparents and before, um, the parents of baby boomers. Uh, starting with that generation, down through boomers, then to Gen X, then millennials, then Gen Z. In, in each generation, there has been a movement of publishing, of media, of press, and of teaching, all centered around the idea that young people are leaving the church. So in my grandparents' generation, in the silent generation, uh, during when the 60s came and there was this cultural revolution and boomers started you know, going and to Woodstock and growing their hair out or whatever, uh, the silent generation, they thought, young people are leaving the church, what do we do? And there was a wave of publishing and of radio stuff and of all kinds of stuff about, here's why young people are leaving the church and here's how we should handle it. And you can go back and you can find and you can read this stuff. And then when boomers got older and their kids, uh, Gen X, started listening to Pearl Jam and, you know, toying with postmodernism, <laughs> there was this whole thing of, Gen X is leaving the church. And there was a wave of publishing, articles and radio and all kinds of things. Young people are leaving the church. And there was this whole thing in the church growth movement in the 80s and 90s. How do we get young people to stay in church? Because they're leaving. There was this crisis. You can go back and read that stuff. And then Gen X did the same thing when their little brothers and sisters and friends who are millennials. That's my generation and many of us here. Millennials are leaving the church. How do we keep the young people in the church? What do we do? Uh, they've gone totally postmodern. How do we engage with them? And publishing and podcasts and seminary classes and all kinds of things in crisis mode. How do we stop the bleeding? And now we can see that there's a, another wave about how to keep Gen Z in the church. And there's been a thing starting early 20th century until today. Every generation has had a crisis season of realizing that the generation behind them has people who are leaving the church. What fascinates me is that in each generation, much of the media and the press and the publishing that's come out about this has acted like it's a new phenomenon. Young people are, are leaving the church for the first time. <laughs> this is a new thing. And we can read here, it's not a new thing. People have always been leaving the church. Even Jesus, he's literally in the synagogue teaching. And many of his, many of his disciples go, eh, not for me. You know why? Because it's completely understandable that people would hear the claims of Jesus say, this is not for me. This is too difficult and walk away. Jesus understands it. And we should understand it. Um, verse 62, Jesus says, I love this. Well, end of 61. Does this offend you? And he says, then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? Jesus is referring to what we call the ascension, where he went back into heaven after the resurrection. He ascended and he... Uh, 
read in the New Testament about how he took a seat at the right hand of the Father. And we talk today about how Jesus sits on a throne as king of the world. He intercedes for us as our high priest. Jesus today is still a human being. He didn't go back into spirit land. He's still incarnate, but he is somewhere in reality ruling over all things, upholding creation by the word of his power. He is in his glory. And Jesus says here, it's like he's saying, look, you're offended by me as I'm, you know, barefoot or sandaled and dirty from, you know, sleeping outside or whatever, and I'm teaching in this synagogue. And you can come up and you can touch me and you can talk to me. If you're offended now, just wait till you see me in my unveiled glory. Wait till you see me as I, uh, as I truly am, w- w- without any sort of a- a- accommodation. If you're offended by me now, just, just, you just wait. It's like Jesus is saying... It's like, he's, it's like he's letting us know that it's not just his teaching that's offensive, it's his very person that's offensive. And we need to understand that. It's not just the teaching of Jesus that's hard, it's who we believe that he is. We believe that Jesus is the beginning and the end of everything. He's the answer to everything. He's the hope for the whole world. That means that we have to let go of all of our other hopes. That means that we come to the end of ourselves when we come to him, and that's hard. So we can understand and should understand why people people say, not for me. Here's the second thing. It's understandable. Second thing, it's natural. It is natural for people to go from belief to unbelief. Look at verse 63. Jesus says, the spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. Jesus is teaching us that by ourselves, when Jesus talks about the flesh counts for nothing, he's saying, by ourselves, in our human nature, unaided by God the Holy Spirit, we are not able to fully understand and grasp the goodness of God and the goodness of Jesus and the love of God that comes to us in him. In our unaided, regular, as we are born and as we live, human nature in our flesh we don't see the goodness ultimately in who God is in Christ our hearts are bent toward the things away from the things of God now I want to be clear here God created we can read in our Bibles God created human beings in his image and he called them good to be a human is to be is a good thing Our lives are valuable. God creates us good because he creates us in our image. And he said so. He said that it was good. But ever since sin entered into our world, we are born into a rebellion as rebels. And sin is not just something that we do. It's the pollution in the environment that we live in. And the spiritual air that we we breathe. 
We are so wrapped up in sin. It clouds everything. So in our natural state, even though God creates us as these good, beautiful creatures, as humanity in his image, we're born into a mess. And we're unable, physically, actually unable to receive God for who he is in Christ. It's natural for people to go from believing to unbelieving. You know, in school, if you took science in school or if you're into physics, we talk about entropy. Entropy is this law of physics that things tend to fall apart, right? Things are always separating. If you you can build a house and it's not going to stand forever, you leave it alone long enough, the house will eventually take enough time, it will eventually crumble. Well, each of us experiences spiritual entropy. And we're a part of it. Our belief will naturally crumble to unbelief. The ability to believe and receive and follow Jesus is not in our flesh. It's in the spirit. And that takes us to the third thing. How do we understand the deconstruction journey? The journey from belief to unbelief. Well, it's understandable. We need to know that. It's natural. We need to know that. But here's the last thing. It's not final. There is a power greater than the spiritual entropy that pollutes the world that we live in. And it's the Spirit of God. It's not final. Jesus says, The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken, they are full of the Spirit and of life. Yet there are some who do not believe. Jesus had known from the beginning which one of them did not believe and who would betray him. But he went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. Even though there was somebody in his company, even someone on the inside who would ultimately betray Jesus, his movement could not be stopped because it was a movement of the Holy Spirit. Even though our hearts are naturally bent toward unbelief. Belief is possible not because we try hard enough, not because we learn enough information, but because the Holy Spirit of God, as we confess in the creed, the Lord, the giver of life, he inhabits the word of Christ. Jesus said, my words are full of the spirit and life. So when Jesus teaches When Jesus preaches and proclaims, when we read his words, in fact, when we read about him, Jesus himself is the word incarnate. That word is accompanied with the Holy Spirit. It's easy for us to remember this because as I'm speaking now, I'm speaking words to you, and these words come to you on my breath. (laughs) Well, spirit, the word for spirit in the Bible in Greek and Hebrew also means breath or wind. So the word of God, which is Jesus, comes to us on the breath of God, which is the spirit of God. In the Bible, word and spirit, son and spirit, Jesus and Holy Spirit, they go together. And in our flesh, we will always naturally move from believing to not believing. But with the proclamation that Jesus is Lord, with the teaching that Jesus is who he is, also comes the Spirit of God who accompanies the Word, comes into our life 
It makes us makes people able to actually believe it. So even though the deconstruction journey is understandable and natural, it's not the final thing. God didn't just send his son into the world in order to save us. He sent his son anointed by the Holy Spirit in order to save us and make us able to receive that salvation. That's what Jesus is teaching us here. So here's the big idea. If we are left to ourselves, every single one of us would choose unbelief over belief eventually. But God has not left us to ourselves. God has sent his spirit to accompany his word, Jesus Christ, to create belief in the hearts of people. What people? Which people? Well, the ones that the Father calls. This is why Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father calls them. So we see here the work of the whole Trinity coming together in our salvation. The Father calls people. People hear his word, Jesus Christ. And the Spirit enables them to receive the word. Here's the point. The journey from belief to unbelief is understandable and natural. But God, Father, Son, and Spirit, the fullness of who he is, comes to us in order to save us in spite of ourselves. You see that? Okay. So that's what we need to understand about deconstruction, at least from this text. So how should we apply that truth? How should that work out in this little church? Well, many of you have heard uh, me talk about um, my motto for ministry, which is becoming our little church's motto. It's on our website. It's this, deep orthodoxy, broad welcome. What that means is we want to be rooted in the depth of believing what Jesus believed and teaching what Jesus taught. We want to be rooted in the orthodox faith that the spirit-filled church has believed through the centuries and confessing the Father, Son, and Spirit for the life of the world. That's our anchor. But that anchor is so deep and so immovable that we can go and reach far and broad to welcome all kinds of people. Churches tend to either go deep with their belief and their doctrine and not very good at welcoming others, or they go broad with their welcome, but they're not very good at holding to orthodoxy or going deep with it. And we want to do both. Why? Because God does both. So that's my motto, and that's becoming the motto for our church. And here's why I bring it up. How should we respond to the people who are deconstructing around us and among us now that we understand that journey? Well, we want to respond with deep orthodoxy. We want to faithfully proclaim the word of Christ. We want to teach and believe what Jesus taught and what Jesus believed. Because the Holy Spirit accompanies that teaching. 
And because only the Holy Spirit coming to people that the Father chooses can reverse the deconstruction. I can't do it. We can't be quick enough, witty enough, educated enough. The preaching can't be good enough. The music can't be good enough. We can't be nice enough. Only the Holy Spirit can awaken faith in people. So we want to be dedicated to speaking the words that the Holy Spirit accompanies. The word about Christ, the gospel. We want our orthodox anchor to go deep. This also means that when it's time to wrestle for being offended by Jesus' words, we actually wrestle with what Jesus taught, what Jesus believed. We come together as a community to go back to the orthodox faith and wrestle with Jesus. Why? Because when we wrestle with Jesus, that's where the Spirit is. And that's who we need to bring us through this. Also, deep orthodoxy. This means that we don't change the fundamentals of what we believe based on the cultural tide. When Jesus is offensive, we don't try to change the message. We hold our anchor to believing what he believed, teaching what he taught. But it also means broad welcome. It means that we go beside ourselves as far as we could possibly go to welcome anybody who might come in here. So this means when our friends or our family or one of us deconstructs and walks away from Jesus, we choose understanding, empathy, and compassion. Not judgment and self-righteousness. We don't talk about them behind their back. We don't talk about them like they're stupid or like they got caught up in some madness. We treat them with respect because if left to ourselves, all of us would do exactly the same thing. This means that when our friends or our family or one another walk away from Jesus, we pray for them because only the Spirit can open their eyes to who Jesus is in love. And it means that we continue to reach out to them. Empathy, prayer, outreach. It means that we work and we go beside ourselves to be a safe place for people to ask hard questions. It means that you don't have to believe to belong here. It means that no question is a thorn in our side. means that you, if you have a view that doesn't agree with the views of our denomination, that's okay. We still be a part of this community. And we can wrestle through it. And even if you don't change your view, you can still be a part of this community. We want you to be here. Now, our church is not always, in the previous season, life incarnation of our church, we have not always been a safe place to ask hard questions. I myself have heard stories from people who have been here about asking hard questions in groups and getting pulled aside later. We don't ask things like that. May that never happen here. Jesus knew that Judas was among his disciples that stayed. 
He was honest about what Judas was going to do. And Jesus continued to welcome Judas all the way until the end. Jesus never kicked him out. The invitation was always open. So, Jesus is the bread of life who gives life to the world. Jesus is the one who gives the Spirit, makes us able to receive that life. Come to the Father. Then may we only be a church that looks like Jesus, acts like Jesus, smells like Jesus, lives like Jesus. May we be filled with His Spirit. That's who we want to be. What that means also, we can come as ourselves, no matter what you're wrestling with. That's good news. Let's pray. Well, you don't eat the whole loaf at once. You gotta break it or cut it, right? Well, how do we even eat his flesh? Well, he was broken for us, for the life of the world. And then bread, we don't just hold it. We gotta take it into our bodies. Paul calls that Christ dwelling our hearts by faith. Jesus called that believing and receiving. And then what else do we do with bread? Well, we sit around and we share it. So how do you even eat? Well, not on your own, but together. So what do we see in all of this? Here's what I see in this story. I see Jesus insisting that we accept him on his own terms, not on ours. And Jesus insisting that his true identity is something bigger and better than we could ever ask for. And it comes to us through his cross, breaking the bread. It comes to us through believing and receiving, eating bread. And it comes to us through our community, sharing the bread. It doesn't come to us through our religious enthusiasm. It doesn't come to us through our culture wars or our causes or activism and it doesn't come to us through our desires to want more and more and more blessing but when I look at those three things I see Portland and I see me and I see us and what is God calling us to as a new church well we could be if we wanted to be we could try to be a religious enthusiasm church and we might get some people in here. Or we could try to be a culture war activist church. We might get some people in here. Or we could try to be a get your blessing today on whatever church. We might get some people. But those things are not enough. They're too shallow. 
to be a bread of life church which starts with my faith and starts with your faith what kind of Jesus are you looking for what kind of Jesus are you asking questions to and what kind of Jesus are you willing to receive is he from God is he for you and is he eternal because that's the real thing Let's pray.